Dr. Master is out again this week. Um, so Mel asked if I would fill in. Uh, we're going to look at another one of the minor prophets. So a few weeks ago when I filled in, we looked at Micah, who was a contemporary of Isaiah. So we're going to look at Amos uh, this morning, who is another contemporary of Isaiah. Uh, so let me pray, and then we'll get started. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day, and especially this day as we uh, celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we do ask, Lord, that you would give us now your spirit as we turn to your word. Uh, Help us to understand and and believe uh, the message that you have for us uh, from the book of Amos. We pray that all that we do this day uh, would bring glory and honor to Christ, and we pray that you would encourage and strengthen our faith. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, we're going to try and just do an overview uh, of the book of Amos, nine chapters. Um, if you have some time this afternoon, I would encourage you to go and read it yourself. It won't take you too long. Um, but why are we looking at Amos? Well, again, I mentioned uh, he is another contemporary of Isaiah, uh, so I don't want to go too far afield of what uh, Dr. Master has been teaching. Um, and he also obviously is going to have a similar message uh, to the message that we see in Isaiah. Um, I'm going to start by reading just the first uh, verse of chapter 1. So it says, The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So we get a little bit of info here about the prophet himself, right? Uh, and one of the kind of interesting things we notice right away He's actually not technically a, what we might call, professional or traditional prophet, right? He actually identifies himself as a shepherd. Uh, And if you turn to uh, chapter 7, he elaborates a little bit in a kind of an interesting interchange between him and uh, the priest Amaziah. So uh, starting in, let's see, chapter 7, verse 10... It says, Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. Uh, Quick note, part of that is true. He never said that Jeroboam would die by the sword, though. So Amaziah is actually uh, making some things up in this. Uh, Verse 12, And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah, and eat bread there, and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. So here we learn a little bit more. Uh, He repeats the fact that he is uh, a shepherd or a herdsman, but he's also apparently a fruit farmer, right? Um, Tending the the sycamore figs. Um, But notice he's responding to Amaziah's accusation. Amaziah is essentially treating him as kind of a prophet for hire. That's why he tells him, uh, go flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there. Uh, maybe a hint that Amaziah himself perhaps is a priest for hire. You know, he's, he's kind of hires himself out. Um, but at any rate, he is accusing Amos of being kind of a prophet for hire. And Amos' re- response is, 
I'm not actually a prophet. I don't come from a family of prophets. The Lord actually called me from my, my calling as a shepherd to deliver this message. There's no money in this for me at all. Um, so just an interesting note. And we can see from that that, um, you know, again, the Lord often uses the least likely person, right? So if you think about um, Moses, who numbers uh, 12, 3 says, with, you know, was the meekest of all the earth and was perhaps a, you know, a stutterer, might have had a speech impediment, um, not an impressive person. And Moses is the one that the Lord chooses to deliver his people from, from Egypt, right? Um, you think about Paul uh, in the New Testament, we learned that Paul was not a very impressive person, at least in person, um, right? Some of his opponents kind of make fun of him for this, um, and yet the Lord uses him tremendously to grow the, the early church. David as well. Right, it was the kind of the smallest, the youngest of his family. Uh, again, a shepherd, and the Lord chooses him to be the preeminent king uh, over his people. So the Lord uses unlikely people and does that here again uh, with Amos. Um, in some ways, it's it's uh, calls to mind First Corinthians uh, chapter one verses twenty six and twenty nine or twenty six through twenty nine. Um, Paul says, "For consider your calling." Brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, uh, I think helpful for us to remember that the Lord can use anyone, right? Even a shepherd to deliver his message uh, to his people. Um, so, um, this is who uh, Amos is, right? Um, where then is he from and where is he prophesying? This is also kind of interesting. Uh, so it says he was among the shepherds of Tekoa. Tekoa is a little bit south of Jerusalem. So which kingdom does that put him in? North or south? Where is he from? It's from the southern kingdom, right? So what then does he say uh, in verse 1 about who he is prophesying to or against? Israel. That's right. The word that uh, the words of Amos, which he saw concerning Israel. So he's a southerner, but he's actually going to be called to preach to the north. Could be a little awkward. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Same spelling, or is it a different spelling? Okay, different spelling. <clears throat> so we've got a southerner. He's going to be called to preach to the north. Could get a little bit awkward for him. Um, <laughs> we'll see. Uh, it's fascinating the way he, he prophesies. Uh, we'll see that in just a moment here. Um, when does he prophesy? Pro- Two years before the earthquake. Yes. And we're actually not sure what that earthquake is. Uh, it's obviously big enough that his, his people of his own day would have recognized uh, what it was. But we can't place it particularly um, from looking you know, back into history. We do know it's while uh, Uzziah is king and Jeroboam. So 
Jeroboam, this is Jeroboam II, took the throne in around, um, let's see, 793. Uh, and Uzziah dies in 739. So somewhere in there is when uh, Amos is prophesying. Um, so this is, as I said, a little bit before uh, Micah, actually. We looked, you know, a few weeks ago we looked at Micah. Um, Isaiah's ministry, obviously, is very long, so he has you know, a few different prophets that he overlaps with. Uh, Amos is going to be preaching in the north a little bit before Micah preaches in both the north and the south, uh, and Isaiah preaches primarily in the south. Um, what is important about this time? Well, this is actually, um, again, a little bit interesting compared to Isaiah. During this time period, uh, when Jeroboam was reigning and the beginning of Uzziah's reign, uh, Israel is actually kind of at a high point. In fact, um, some of the commentaries say that this may have been the most prosperous time for Israel since Solomon. So they're actually doing really well. Uh, and what's the temptation when you're doing really well? You think the Lord's blessing us, right? Um, things are going great. Assyria also at this time, um, who is kind of has been the major uh, player on the scene, they're actually kind of waning at this point, so they're at a low point um, during Amos's reign, or excuse me, during Amos's uh, ministry. So the Assyrian Empire is not quite as big of a threat as it used to be, but it's going to become a much bigger threat shortly. So turns out they were just kind of catching their breath, and the empire is going to continue. The Assyrian Empire is going to continue for another like hundred years, and eventually, obviously, will um, completely conquer Israel. But it doesn't look that way at this point when Amos is prophesying. Things look good for Israel. Um, the Assyrians are kind of a little bit weaker. They don't have as much influence uh, on, on the stage. So they're tempted to think uh, the Lord is blessing them and things are great. Um, I mentioned that um, Amos is a southerner, so he's essentially a foreigner in some sense. Um, that, that relationship between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom is a little bit tricky. Um, they're obviously kinsmen, right, to some extent, and yet there's some, some hostility and some animosity uh, there because the kingdom is now split. And the Lord calls uh, Amos from the south to go and preach in the north. And he most likely starts his ministry, at least, in Bethel. Uh, we saw that, right, when we read the section where Amaziah, the priest, is dealing with him, and he says... Um, but never again prophesy at Bethel, chapter 7, verse 13. For it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Unless he doesn't say it's a temple of the Lord. Uh, Bethel is where Jeroboam I had set up a golden calf for worship when he started his reign. Um, Bethel and Dan are the two places. And he had done that because he did not want the people from the north traveling back to the south for worship, right? So he sets up this false worship uh, in the northern kingdom so they can stay there. Uh, okay, so all of this is the kind of background to the book, um, and we'll dive in now to what is the message uh, that Amos delivers. Um, you can probably guess. What, what have we seen in Isaiah and in Micah is, is the primary message that these prophets are bringing. There's two components. Warning and judgment. Warning and judgment, yep, would be the first major component. And it's definitely, in Amos, the vast majority is warning and judgment. There's also always a little bit of what? Promise. 
promise, promise of restoration, right? Hope uh, that the Lord will not completely wipe out his people, but will actually save a remnant. So we'll see that uh, again in Amos. Uh, any questions so far before we kind of jump into what the message of Amos looks like? Okay. Okay. Uh, so this also is, is really interesting. The way that he delivers this uh, message of judgment uh, is pretty fascinating. Um, it starts first with a series of oracles, uh, so oral messages that he gives. Um, that's basically from chapters 1 through 6. Uh, and then in 7, 8, and 9, there's a series of visions that he sees of judgment. Um, but notice, so starting in uh, verse, let's see, Verse 2 of chapter 1, uh, Amos writes, And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. So he's setting up this message that's coming forth from the Lord, compares him to the roaring of a, of a lion. And uh, he hasn't yet said, though, what his message is going to be or, or where it's uh, directed. Um, but then in verse Three, he says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So first off, he's hitting Damascus, uh, which would be the Arameans. So he's outside. He's actually preaching against uh, surrounding peoples, right? Uh, He does the same in verse six. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to, to deliver them up to Edom. Uh, so Gaza would have been a city of the Philistines. So again, he's still preaching judgment against these surrounding nations. Um, verse 9, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Um, Tyre is in a little bit northwest of uh, Israel. So this is the Phoenician uh, Empire. Uh, Verse 11, For three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. Um, Edom would have been on the eastern side, so the Edomites. So again, so far, Amos is only prophesying against Israel's enemies, right? So they're probably feeling pretty good about this, right? They're they're enjoying hearing this. Um, Verse 13, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. What's the, the kind of theme that's been repeated over and over on these judgments? Why is the Lord judging these other nations? And that, that repeated phrase of for three transgressions and for four is really just the same um, that indicates it's for their multiple sins, their many sins. It's not like there's some set number. Oh, they, they hit three, therefore they're judged. Or they hit four, therefore they're judged. It's just this is repeated multiple sins, a pattern. Um, that the Lord is judging them for. Notice he doesn't mention idolatry or false worship, right? He's actually calling out their cruelty and the 
way that they treat uh, the uh, people that they're conquering. Um, in some, I think in some ways this is an indication that the Lord holds all people accountable, right? His, his justice is universal. Uh, his requirements are uh, not just for the people that he has given special revelation to, but they're actually for everyone. Um, these nations didn't have the Ten Commandments, right? Um, they, they had not received a direct word from the Lord saying, this is how you ought to live. And yet, they're being held accountable because their consciences know enough to say, this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, verse 1 of chapter 2, thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Moab, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So Moab, Moabites, um, obviously another enemy, uh, a group that, people group that the Israelites uh, and Judahites would have um, had hostility with, and so they're still thinking, this is, this is great, the Lord's judging all of our enemies. Uh, we're doing well, we're prospering. Assyria is not the threat that it was. Maybe, and we'll see this uh, here in a minute, maybe the end is coming and the Lord's going to you know, put his people in charge as rulers of uh, the entire earth. Um, but then, notice in verse 4 of chapter 2, Amos says, For three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Um, he's now, at this point, begun to turn to what some people call meddling, right? Uh, and it's interesting, some of the, the commentators think perhaps the Israelites would have actually still been thinking, oh, yeah, this is kind of good, right? Those self-righteous Judahites down there think they're the true kingdom. Like, yeah, they should be judged. But some of the hearers may have caught their breath for a second, right? Begun to quiet down a little bit and think, well, this is hitting a little bit closer to home. Uh, these are still kinsmen. We have a shared heritage and history. I don't know how I feel about this. Uh, the Lord's going to judge Judah. Uh, and notice what he judges Judah for, right? Uh, it's not necessarily cruelty, though we will see in a little bit, Israel's going to get judged for their uh, oppression and their abuse uh, of people. Um, but really, the root of it, right, is because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. Um, so I think a lesson we can draw from this is the fact that uh, rather than this uh, special relationship with the Lord and, and having revelation from God, rather than that sort of uh, setting them up for, you know, we can do whatever, we're, we're protected, it's actually going to hold them even more accountable, right, for their sin. Having known the, the law of the Lord and flatly rejected it, the Lord will judge them even more severely uh, in some sense um, for that. Um, okay. Uh, then, if his hearers are a little bit uneasy at this point, right, um, it's about to get uh, worse. Um, and it'd be interesting to 
to be there and see what the reaction would have been when he says this in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned, they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Uh, obviously now he's getting to the heart of his message, and the rest of the book is essentially going to be judged against Israel proper, the northern kingdom. Um, and he's going to call them out for all kinds of sins. Really, if we, if we kind of boil it down to its essence, it's, it's they're living like all these other nations, right? Uh, and that's kind of the point that he's making when he uses that same formula over and over for three transgressions of such and such and for four. for three, And then he does it for Judah and then he does it for Israel. They've essentially been living uh, like their pagan neighbors and enemies uh, and the Lord's going to judge them for it. Um, and so this is not obviously an easy message for Amos to bring, uh, especially being from the south and delivering this in the north. Um, but this is uh, the heart of his message and uh, it just in some ways is striking how um, important it is to grasp the necessity of giving the message of judgment in order to understand the message of salvation and rescue and mercy right without the judgment the the rescue the mercy uh, salvation doesn't make sense and um, it's interesting though that that even in the yeah, go to the choir. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, yeah, you got to go early today. Um, especially nowadays, right? The, the the church, by and large, uh, has wanted to play down that message of, of judgment because it might offend. Um, we don't want people to feel bad, uh, and yet it's it's true. The Lord will judge sin, and we need to know that. Um, and yet there is hope, and there is salvation that is promised to those who will turn uh, and repent. And we'll see that here, actually, just a minute as well. Um, so much of these chapters, we won't go through all of them. Much of them are essentially God recounting, um, what he has done for Israel. So you can see that just, um, briefly in verse nine of chapter two, yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars. I destroyed his fruit. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness. So he's reminding them of everything he's done for them. And then uh, he says, I raised up some of your sons for prophets, verse 11, some of your young men for Nazarites. But this is what they've done, verse 12. But you made the Nazarites drink wine, which they're not supposed to, right? They're supposed to abstain. Uh, and commanded the prophets, saying, you shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. And we're going to see this repeated in that day, in that day. Um, just quickly, you can turn over to kind of give you the, the background of this. Um, he's referring to the, the day of the Lord, which is mentioned in a number of the prophets. But chapter 5, verse 18 uh, says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? So the Israelites, 
idea was that the day of the Lord is going to come, he's going to, uh, he's going to place us sort of as a, the, the, the head nation of all other nations. He's going to judge all of our enemies, and uh, then the end will come, and this will be fantastic. And Amos is saying, why do you want this day to come? Um, because he says, uh, again, at the end of verse 18, it is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Um, so again, he's, he's telling them, you don't want this to come because it's going to bring judgment even on you for your sins. Um, there's a, uh, you see, um, chapter three, verses nine and 10, um, is another way that the Israelites have responded to the Lord's, uh, blessing and, and goodness. And remember, this is a time of prosperity for them, um, he says, proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her. So he's actually calling other nations to be witnesses to what the Israelites have done. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Um, chapter four, verse one. Uh, this is maybe that famous uh, verse that people... <laughs> Always think of, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. He's not talking at all about their physical appearance. He's talking about their lives of luxury and self-indulgence um, that the sort of upper class are, are engaging in, including the, the wives. Um, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, he says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. And to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes, pass over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. Who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David, invent for themselves instruments of music. Who drink wine in bowls, uh, think of big, big bowls, right? <clears throat> and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Joseph, uh, his descendants were Ephraim and Manasseh, and those are the main tribes in the northern kingdom. Therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. So the Lord's going to lead away those leaders that have been engaging in all of this first. They'll be the first ones to go into exile. Um, what is that judgment going to look like? Um, well, I, we already read a little bit of it, but um, chapter 3, verses uh, 1 and 2. Um, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? It's a rhetorical question, of course, they do. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? No, he has prey. Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare bring up, spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? 
Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? We know the answers to all of these, right? And then the last one, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? So it's clear that this is, this is coming from the Lord, right? This, you can't explain this away. It's the Lord who's going to bring this judgment um, on his people. Uh, and it's, it's because they are his people, right? We already mentioned that they're going to be judged more severely. But in verse 2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Uh, he's going to hold them accountable um, in a dreadful way. It goes on uh, in, in chapter 4, chapter 5. Uh, but notice also in chapter 5, um, verse 4, there's some places where there's little, little bits of hope that are sprinkled in. So chapter 5, verse 4, For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out, uh, sorry, that's 3, verse 4, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into, into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Verse 6, Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it. For Bethel, O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. So the Lord is holding out hope, right, and calling them back to turn, return to him, right? Um, there's more recounting of Israel's sin. Uh, and then again, you see in verse 14 of chapter 5, seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So... He's saying, yes, this judgment is certain, but for those that will hear the message and will seek the Lord and turn back, there is hope for them, right? He will uh, preserve them. He doesn't say he's going to necessarily rescue them and keep them from exile, um, but he will preserve them um, through it. Any questions yeah, up to this point? we got just a few more minutes. The problem, though, so the main problem uh, is the vast majority of them are not going to hear that message, right? Uh, and we already looked a little bit at um, Amaziah's interchange, the priest, uh, with Amos. In some ways, Amaziah kind of is the prototype for Israel as a whole. He represents uh, the Israelite response when he basically says, stop your prophesying and go back home, right? Go, go back and earn your bread down south, right? Leave our... Uh, leave our place. We don't want to hear this anymore. Uh, and that's exactly what the Israelite response was. Um, there, there was no, um, you know, mass turning back to the Lord. Uh, they continued in their, in their indulgence, uh, in their abusing of the poor, um, in their, uh, in their rejecting righteousness and pursuing evil. Uh, and the result, ultimately, right, is that God will bring the day of the Lord, and it's not going to be uh, the kind of the day of the Lord that they were hoping for or expecting. Um, Can I ask a weird kind of question? Sure. Uh, just my own ignorance. Obviously, mo the minor prophets were well enough recorded at the time in, in Judah and Israel to, for their actual words to have survived this long. 
But how did that process actually work? There's clearly some form of authority or, or civil government involvement, but there also seems to be a pattern at that point that profits were largely for hire, which there, there just seems to be a slight disagreement between those two types of authority to me. And I don't really understand how that worked or um, how information was disseminated. So, trying to understand. So, um, you're wondering, are you asking about in terms of like the the message at that time or how so the, the prophecy at that by that point and probably for a long time before then had had developed a reputation for being you pay for this you you prophesy good things for me or you call on god to do good things for me uh but there's it's also still being recorded and there's clearly government involvement and the king is involved and things like that so so are you um, you're curious as to how like this perhaps got preserved? Yes, that's a great question and uh, one that I have no answer <laughs> to at all. Actually, um, it, in the Lord's providence, and it's actually pretty remarkable when you look kind of even at the uh, structure of these books that this shepherd um, he actually uses, especially if you're looking in the original Hebrew. Like, there's a lot of satire, and the like level of writing is pretty impressive. Um, Somehow, though, they were they were recorded, obviously, and kept yeah. down was through that, the ages. Was that not by the scribes and people like that in the temple that because they preserved them and cared? Remember, they in the, that other town where they found all of those preserved. Oh, you're thinking of like the Dead Sea Scrolls, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it is interesting that right this message, which is so much against the current government, obviously, of Israel, has still ended up in the Old Testament canon. Um, well, I would wager that the, the head priest of Israel didn't have arguments with every medium and prophet who decided to tell him that he was going to fall off of his horse and break his neck the next day. You know, it's, it's that, as political and privatized as prophecy had become at that point, it can't have been unusual for someone to say, oh, the king is going to die. Right. Off in left field over here in... in and God yeah. was the, the interesting thing, I'm wondering though, uh, perhaps the ones that were for hire were the ones who were actually, and I would guess, were prophesying good most of the time. They're the ones prophesying blessing. Um, they're obviously, whether, whether it's Amos and then others that come after him that preserve his writing until uh, the Old Testament is, is you know, the, the Hebrew scriptures are put together, um, I don't know what that process looked like, to be honest. Uh, it is an, uh, an interesting question, and I'll see if I can go dig up something on that. Um, I don't know how prevalent the whole, um, you know, prophesy for, for higher thing is. It obviously was, was there. Balaam is another example of somebody who, like, the king, you know, pays him essentially to say, like, you know, curse Israel, and he can't, right? He says he, he can't do it. The Lord won't let him. Um, so those things are, those kinds of prophets are out there. Uh, and Amos is obviously not one of them. Um, how it is that his words got recorded, uh, some of these other prophets, maybe they weren't actually writing prophets. Uh, some of the early prophets, if you think like, uh, Elijah and Elisha, um, we actually don't have their own writing. We have them recorded in the book of, you know, Kings and Chronicles. Uh, but it's only these, what are called the latter prophets or the writing prophets starting with um, Isaiah and then Jeremiah and Ezekiel and then all the minor prophets that actually wrote down their message that we still have today. Mm -hmm. So 
Um, so they would have done a lot of their own recording, essentially, or their disciples would have done it for them. Right. Yeah. Um, the the generally accepted um, view is that these minor prophets wrote the book themselves. Uh, some of them uh, may have had someone write it for them that was, yeah, you know, an assistant. Um, and then the Lord has preserved that uh, for his people, yeah, for obviously thousands of years. So, yeah, that is an interesting question. I don't know that we have a whole lot of answers about the details on how we got these um, when, especially when the ruling governments would have been so opposed to their message at that time. Um, so we already talked a little bit about this coming day of the Lord, right? And the Israelites were expecting it to sort of, uh, culminate in them ruling over their enemies. And Amos is telling them, you don't want the day of the Lord because it's actually going to bring judgment on you as well. Uh, and then we see in the Amaziah's response to Amos, uh, what the kind of standard Israelite response would have been, uh, which was a, a rejection of that message. Um, chapters seven, eight, and nine, then he turns from these oral messages to visions that he sees. We won't have time to go into them uh, really in detail at all. There's a couple of visions he has uh, of, of judgment coming where the Lord actually says he relents of that. Um, but then he does say uh, that there is judgment coming. Uh, it won't be the type that he had first thought of, which were uh, locusts and, uh, let's see, yeah, I think it's the locusts and fire. Um, but he is still going to judge Israel. Um, and then it does turn out that this is going to be the case. Um, we don't know, as I said, exactly when Amos prophesies, but most people think somewhere around 760 or 750 BC. By 722 BC, the whole northern kingdom will cease to exist. Uh, they'll all be carried off in exile or some left behind, but it's a tiny number left behind in the they will be ruled by Assyria, who they thought was uh, kind of about to leave the stage. Uh, instead, they come back stronger um, and they conquer Israel. Um, perhaps, I mean, all of this is terrible, but it's interesting to see in chapter 8, verses 11 to 12, what else the Lord is going to do. Um, they had rejected his word, so he basically says, I'm going to take it away from you. Uh, look at Chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Um, I want to make clear, America is not Israel. Right? And I want to be careful to avoid the mistake of equating those two. Uh, and yet, I think it's still right to recognize the kind of general principle that when people reject God's word, at some point, ultimately, he'll just take it away. Um, and in some ways, I wonder, and I'm not the only one, other commentators made this point as well, but you know, is that perhaps happening in, in the West where uh, we've had you know, many years of the Lord delivering his word through faithful preaching, and yet the number of faithful, faithfully preaching Bible churches seems to be dwindling, right? And getting smaller and smaller. And is, is the Lord perhaps uh, judging us in that way, that we've rejected his word for so long um, as a culture that he's now 
removing it, right, in, in various ways. Um, that may be the case, and it's a dreadful thing uh, if it is, because the, the Lord's word gives life. Um, okay, well, the last word, we've seen this in, uh, in Micah. Um, similarly, in Amos, the last word of the book is not actually a message of judgment. So if you flip over to chapter 9, starting in verse 11, Amos says, In that day... Now, he's, just, he's finished talking about all of these judgments still that are going to come. But he says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen, or the tent would be another translation, the tent of David that is fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow from it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord their God. Uh, so we again see the message of hope, right, and restoration. Uh, the really interesting thing is that James, in the book of Acts, Acts uh, chapter 15, uh, verses 16 and 17, James actually quotes these, and it's in the context of the discussion about the Gentiles being brought in when they believe in Christ. Uh, and it's the, the Jerusalem Council and the discussion of what the Gentiles should be required to do, and they decide we're not going to require them to be circumcised. They don't have to submit to that you know, law of Moses the way that, that, that our fathers did. But they need to believe in Christ. And in doing so, they're actually fulfilling uh, these verses. So it's not quite the same clarity of the, the Messiah, Messianic promise that we saw in Micah with, you know, uh, you of Bethlehem, uh, who are least among the peoples, from you will come forth the ruler. It's not quite the same clear, clarity we see in Isaiah of a promised Messiah. But Amos as well is promising that, that the line of David will be restored. And we know ultimately that comes through Christ, through the gospel, and the meeting of God's mercy and judgment on the cross, right? Which is what we celebrate today, the resurrection uh, of Christ and the fulfillment of all that. So, all right, uh, let me pray and we'll be dismissed so we can go find some seats uh, for the service. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that you have preserved it uh, over thousands of years that we can uh, read this now. And we do Lord, pray that you would help us to uh, see and know and hear that message of judgment on sin, but also, Lord, help us to recognize that Christ uh, has taken that judgment for us. If we, if we believe the gospel, if we trust uh, your word um, that we are sinners and that Christ has uh, taken uh, the punishment that we deserve, if we, have put, if we have put our faith and trust in him, then that judgment uh, that, that is uh, due to every uh, one of us as sinners has been uh, already received by him. And we celebrate this day that uh, you raised him from the dead, that he conquered sin and death, uh, and that judgment is complete and finished, and we do not have to fear your judgment if we are in Christ. We pray now that you would bless our time of worship, that it would be honoring and glorifying to you, that it would lift up Christ uh, before us and would strengthen and encourage us in our faith. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.